What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. This week's episode of Burn It All Down. It may not be the feminist sports podcast you want, but it's the feminist sports podcast you need. On this week's panel, we have the brilliant Amira Rose Davis, Assistant Professor of History and Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Penn State, our favorite deadweight lifter, Jessica Luther, independent writer in Austin, Texas, sports writer at Think Progress in DC, the tenacious Lindsay Gibbs, Shereen Ahmed, freelance sports writer and take no shit cat lover in Toronto, Canada. And myself, Brenda Elsie, Associate Professor of History at Hofstra University. This week, we'll talk some Winter Olympics and interview Professor Rachel Ju, an expert on South Korean sport. Then we'll do a difficult but necessary pivot to the trial of Larry Nasser, foregoing our usual burn pile to incinerate everything that's happened in the last two decades to hundreds of girls and women subject to his treatment and unheard by institutions that were supposed to protect and serve them. So, Amira, how are you feeling about the game today? Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> Guys, this has anybody had any red gloves <laughs> on lately? Handgate, glove gate. I'm just so I'm so over it, and I'm trying to not care. I'm like, oh, whatever happens, happens. Who cares? We already have so many rings and whatnot. But I literally, like, my stomach hurts. I I just I don't. I want it to be over. Just wake me up tomorrow. Tell me if we won. Patriots fan Amira over there is a little bit nervous about Tom Brady's hand, even though the rest of the known universe knows that, of course, nothing is actually really wrong he had with Tom Brady's stitches, hand. Seven stitches. <laughs> this is yeah, all so a conspiracy. Did, so, did Ambi, so did Abby Wambach. This in is her true, head, but maybe he's a little more played. delicate, okay? <laughs> well, he's just going to believe. What doesn't? What is his whole thing? Oh, yeah, thing? that's true. I figure he's going to drink a bottle of water and he's going to imagine his hand being. He probably didn't even need the stitches he could have just imagined the pliability of his skin and it would have like covered it yeah no i'm just completely out on all of this (laughs) to be honest i'm more (laughs) concerned about our defense so you know We'll, we'll, we'll make it. Good. Well, Blake Bortles, you know. Are the Patriots playing? <laughs> are they playing the Jacksonville um, Jaguars? Jacksonville? Yeah. That's the team I'm rooting for just because I love the good place so much. <laughs> oh, yeah. And well, that is true. I do love the good place. Blake Bortles. And that did warm my heart seeing Jason's montage when they made it into the championship <laughs> game. But yeah. In the latest episode, he needed a fake name, and so he went with Jake Jordles. <laughs> oh, my God. That's so well, good. Anyways, How do you not love that? Well, that's just check I, I, on listen, me. Maybe, maybe one day Canada will get real real football but we'll have to, just have to see <laughs> no that, that's you know what we actually have the cfl i love them and we've actually got the johnny, best hockey in the world johnny Manziel's so coming well, to the can i just say too, on so. the best hockey oh, in the world no. note i will have you know that the boston bruins have beaten the habs three times in the last week i'm a very uh, okay. happy person right, over here uh, uh, listen, amira listen, we're not listen. gonna get into real that football, how many stanley cups real football have? is soccer <laughs> I'm leaving the bus today. <laughs> I'm leaving the bus today, and that's the way it's going to go. And if Tom Brady's Woo! hand hurts, he can always deflate the ball. 
He knows exactly what he's oh, doing. So let's low not shot. low shot. Low shot. He's allowed to play like cheater pants. Listen. <laughs> okay, we're gonna move on. Okay, so we do have the Winter Olympics coming up, and I'm really interested, Amira, in what's what's on your mind. What are you paying attention to? Yeah, so there's a few things happening. As we get a little closer to the games and the opening ceremonies in Pyeongchang, it's about 18 days from the time of recording, a little over two weeks. We have a few developments that, you know, I wanted to bring up. One, and this is probably the biggest one, we now know that North Korea will be participating in the games. The IOC has confirmed them. They will be marching in a united delegation with South Korea, one torchbearer from each country, under a united Korean flag. And they are fielding athletes in five sports, most notably a United women's hockey team. They are competing again as Korea, and they have 12 members of the team from North Korea. They also are competing in four other sports as individual athletes. The IOC has now approved this. The IOC President Bach has said, quote, the Olympic Games are always about building bridges. They never erect walls. The Olympic spirit is about respect, dialogue, and understanding, blah, 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 blah. We're hopefully opening the door to a brighter future on the Korean peninsula and inviting the world to join in a celebration of hope. So as we know, the Olympic spirit, you know, despite the IOC's decades of insisting that it's just this like wonderful, fluffy thing, we also know it's insanely political. So we all be watching to see how this plays out in Pyeongchang. The other thing that we've been talking about here is our friend Pita Tua Tufua, who is best known as the shirtless Tongan flag bearer from the Rio game. Well, he is now officially qualified for the Winter Games in cross-country skiing. He's just the second Tongan to do so. And his his qualification, which is super, he missed the flight to one of his races to qualify. So this was like really down to the wire, but he made it to the Winter Games. And his inclusion reignites this conversation that we've had on the show and that we'll continue to have about diversity in the games. And when we talk about diversity in the Winter Games, we're not just talking about in the United States context. But globally, right, we've seen the IOC continuously drop the ball and not really give a damn that countries from Latin America, from continental Africa are not represented in the Winter Olympics all. And so the more inclusion that we're seeing this year by Nigerian bobsledders, by PETA and in his cross-country skiing is going to put a spotlight on this uh, dearth of kind of global competitors and and have a conversation that we keep, need to keep going. And then the last thing that happened this week in terms of the Winter Olympics is that Adam Rapone, who's the first openly gay athlete to be selected for the Winter Olympics, pushed back on Vice President Mike Pence being um, appointed to lead the U.S. delegation in the opening ceremonies. He said, quote, you mean Mike Pence, the same Mike Pence who wanted to fund gay conversion therapy? I'm not buying it. He doesn't stand for anything I believe in. Pence and his spokes office, of course, pushed back saying, oh, this was not factual, but we know that they have a loose idea about what facts actually are. And Adam himself took to Twitter to say, you know what, I have the receipts. And he has an epic Twitter thread that I want I want everybody to read where he 
showed him his own words. And he said, listen, I'm proud to represent the country. And to me, what America is, is I'm an out gay man. Our differences is what makes America great. And I am not interested in doing a meet and greet with the delegation if Pence is leading it. So, you know, these are some of the things I've had my eye on this week. We have United Korea. We have addition of diversity in the Olympic Games, which is shining a light on their lack thereof this year and many years before that. And we have Adam versus Mike Pence. So that's your Olympic update for now. And that brings me to the subject of our interview for this week. The following interview on the Winter Olympics is one that surprised me because of the way in which Professor Ju highlighted how Pyeongchang is quite different from some of the recent Olympics we've seen and her nuanced explanation of the tensions between local residents and those who criticize the games for environmental and economic costs. So I'm here today with Rachel Ju, Associate Professor of American Studies at Middlebury College. She's the author of Transnational Sport, Gender, Media, and Global Korea, published by Duke University Press in 2012. We are thrilled to have an expert today on sport in South Korea. Thank you for joining us at Burn It All Down, Rachel. Oh, I'm happy to be here. For those of us or listeners who aren't really very familiar with Pyeongchang, could you describe a little bit about what the area where the Olympics will be held is like? Yeah, sure. It's it's really rural and it's not very developed. There are a few ski resorts and the hope is that in in the wake of this Olympics, those ski resorts will expand and it will be seen as a kind of international destination for skiers and for winter sports enthusiasts. It is located about three hours by car from Seoul, which is considered the heart of South Korea. And it is in a highly mountainous area. They've also incorporated a, a town called Gangneung, which is along the east coast of South Korea. And that is a, a kind of suburban town, I guess, or a small scale city. And that area doesn't see a lot of snow. And they've built a lot of the ice facilities there for the figure skating, the ice hockey, and the short track speed skating or the speed skating. And they did that as a way to incorporate the capital of this region, this province, into the games. So a a lot like Sochi, where they distributed the games in different areas of the, the region, they followed that model. And so that was largely a local decision to distribute the the kind of resources. And there was a lot of corruption involved in that, involving those who ended up bringing uh, down the, the previous president who was impeached in, in March of last year. So you kind of imagine a mid-range industrial city or a small industrial city and that's where the ice facilities are located. And then all of the alpine facilities are located in Pyeongchang itself, which is a mountainous area. So since 1988, I mean, I remember reading reports in 1998 of some accusations and reports of human rights violations. 
associated with clearing out the poor and and other groups of people in preparation for the Olympics. Do you feel is is that something that's ongoing today or has that changed? Well, I think that it certainly happened with the stadium in the World Cup stadium in 2002 and that became a scandal. Uh, those who were those who were displaced were uh, generally poor and working class people who weren't given a I guess replacement housing as promised. Uh, the upcoming Olympics was seen as happening in a an undeveloped area, a largely undeveloped area, where those who were displaced were not uh, large numbers of people and were seen as, I guess, acceptable sacrifices for development. A lot of the development within that area has been organized by the uh, provincial government of Kangwondo, which was which has been a largely poor and rural province. And uh, they're working with a lot of the chebels or the large conglomerates. And so there's a lot of local control, you could say, in terms of how the development, Olympic development is happening in South Korea. And this leaves out a lot of the central government, which is all uh, located in, in Seoul and in Gyeonggi-do, which is the province of Seoul. And there's been a lot of ambivalence by, I think, the majority of the Korean population about what kinds of dealings have been happening. There clearly has been a lot of uh, corruption. Do you think that the people in the surrounding area of Pyeongchang, that it means something different or special to them, or has it mostly been a burden? I think that there is a lot of defensiveness there, it, with national development in South Korea, a lot of it was centralized in in Seoul, and a, about a, a quarter to a third of the population live in Seoul and the surrounding area. There is uh, industry in Gyeongsangdo Province, which is south of Gangwondo Province, and then there's also the second largest city, Busan, which is at the very tip of the country, which which is relatively wealthy as well. And so there is a real sense that this is a, a regional pride issue, and there's a lot of regionalism in South Korea. So there is a sense that any criticism of the Pyeongchang Olympics is a criticism of the area of Gangwon-do. So even those who may have been displaced or are going to suffer the environmental effects of the Olympics feel very defensive about any outsiders coming in and either saying that, you know, the environmental destruction is bad for the area and the nation and the world in general. And they're also very defensive about anyone coming in and trying to take advantage of the economic opportunities that may appear, however, limited and and short-lived. A lot of your expertise, right, has has been on global media or sports media. What is it that you think that the U.S. audiences might not get <laughs> or, or, or what the sports media in the U.S. might get wrong during these Olympics? I mean, what should we be looking for? 
Well, I think one of the things that you should look for is how South Korea is very good at creating very visual images of the games or the appearance of the games. But what happens, and I think this is for lots of Olympics, you know, to the people and the workers and the supporting staff, I think is an interesting question. Because I think that the images that we're going to see are going to be sleek and present South Korea as a very contemporary and ultra-modern place with lots of technology and beautiful people. I think that that presentation is primary concern of the Olympic Committee and what actually happens behind the scenes, behind the stage, so to speak, I think is something that will be reported by individuals, bloggers, and social critics, of whom there are many in South Korea. So I think looking out for those kinds of stories, I think would be a a good thing to do because the actual image itself is, I think, going to be pretty sleek. Uh, You mentioned before environmental damage, and I know this is sort of a scholarly interest of yours too. What kinds of damages are happening? Well, there's just a lot of clear-cutting of forest, a lot of very quick, rapid upturning of earth in areas. I was just there this summer, and there was a lot of last-minute work that's being done, and a lot of that last-minute work is being done without any environmental review of the long-term effects on drainage systems, hydrological systems, and there have been environmental activists who chained themselves to forests and said, you know, their their whole slogan was 500 years for 15 days. So 500 years of forest for 15 days of games, it's not worth it. They were forcibly removed and there was not a lot of local support again, because many of the local people who live there feel that any critique of the games is a criticism of their region and also uh, preventing their opportunities for economic advancement. So I, I think that there is uh, there are a lot of those kinds of tensions that are happening on a smaller scale. And if you saw you know, the kinds of development that's that's been happening. It's it's it feels very violent in terms of the kinds of reshaping of landscapes for these games, and it's it's questionable and and unlikely that these facilities will be used for any other purpose or will be used in any widespread capacity after the games are over. There is you know a lot of cost overruns that that have been happening in terms of the construction. A lot of it's happening last minute. There's a lot of add-ons. And there's no way that the Kangwondo province will be able to repay. And so it's going to be a national issue in terms of the rest of the country being responsible for the costs of this Olympics. And so I think it's going to become a big political issue after the Olympics are over. One of the other things, since Brazil is a little bit more in my wheelhouse, that we saw is a difficulty for both Rio, Sao Paulo, and other areas to de 
privatize or or get rid of some of the private security forces that they put in place for those mega events. Has South Korea experienced anything similar to that where where they've had to either change some local laws or hire private security forces in order to accommodate the IOC? I think that security right now is probably the number one issue and it's considered a national issue because of the missile tests from North Korea. It's also considered something that South Korea is that's that's affecting the, the actual perception of the games and attendance for the games, the willingness to participate in the games as tourists and uh, even as, as athletes. And so I think the biggest concern is national security right now. And there is some concern about cybersecurity with the Russian Olympics team. I think that they've been banned as a, a country, although individuals will be accepted as athletes, as competitive athletes. There is this concern that there's going to be uh, cyber attacks as well. And so in terms of the actual everyday, day-to-day security, there hasn't been the sense that it's exceptionally, I guess, uh, emboldened. One of the things we've talked a lot about on Burn It All Down is the difficulty of loving some of the sports, even though you know all of the horrible things that are happening around them. Are there things you're excited to watch? Well, yeah, I am, I'm excited to watch the figure skating championships. One of my research focuses is uh, Asian American studies. And so I'm just interested in how a lot of the Asian American figure skaters are represented in relation to a lot of the, the Asian figure skaters and other figure skaters around the world. I'm excited about the women's hockey. There's an interesting story that's gotten a lot of play uh, between or about two sisters who are playing for two different national teams. One who is adopted, um, their names are Marissa and Hannah Brandt. They're from Minnesota and one was adopted. The older sister was adopted from South Korea and the younger sister was, uh, I guess, a bio child of the parents. And South Korea contacted the adoptee and asked her if she wanted to play for the Olympics, the South Korean Olympics team. So she has agreed, and she also adopted her birth name, Leander. So that's also very interesting. And then it wasn't unclear whether Hannah Brandt would make it onto the U.S. Olympics team, and, and she has now. And so they may potentially play against each other. And so that that that's a really interesting story. Oh, think, that's um, so that interesting. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Fascinating. I mean, and there's a whole history of South Korean adoption that has involved lots of individuals like Toby Dawson, who is a freestyle skier, and he was adopted by two ski instructors in Vail from South Korea and Vail, and he used the Olympics, the Turin Olympics, to try to find his birth parents. And he subsequently found his birth parents, and they were reunited in this live ceremony. And Toby Dawson then subsequently got a job coaching the South Korean Olympics team. So there is this uh, whole history of kind of this narrative of reunification and of finding, you know, one's bio parents. But it's it's also very problematic in the sense that there is a sense 
in South Korea that blood mm-hmm. defines your nationality, regardless of whether the, the state or whether your own sense of identity aligns with that. Rachel Ju, thank you so much for being on Burn It All Down. Yeah, no, I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. And now we're going to pivot to a, a, a very serious topic and one that we'd like to send out a trigger warning to listeners about. The conversation that follows will probably have details of sexual abuse that may be very explicit and upsetting to people. We'll put timestamps on the show notes in case those of you need to, to skip it, want to skip it. This week in Michigan, Larry Nasser, the Team USA gymnastics doctor and associate professor at Michigan State University, heard the testimonies of the women he assaulted. At least 150 girls and women suffered sexual abuse at Nasser's hands for over 20 years. As part of his plea bargain, all of his victims have the right to appear in court and give their testimony to confront Nasser. The testimonies reveal so much about how people and institutions refuse to listen to the girls and women. Instead of listening to those hundreds of survivors, people chose to rest on the supposed authority of one man, an all-too-familiar monster as it turns out. This week at Burn It All Down, we've struggled to think of how to honor the survivors and articulate actual words that make sense of a case of this magnitude. So we've decided to forego our usual format of a burn pile and structure the conversation as the biggest incinerator ever to burn it all down. We're going to start with Amira, who's going to talk about her particular choice aspect of the case. Amira? Yeah, I want to start with the man himself. And how he how he revealed how shitty his character is, even in this moment. This week, as uh, hundreds of, I should say hundreds, almost 100 survivors stood in front of him in a courtroom and revealed to the judge, to the courtroom, to the world, the wake of, of devastation he left. He had the audacity to write a single-spaced six-page letter complaining that it was too hard for him to listen to this description of abuse, that he was mentally not able to withstand this, blaming the judge and, and the courtroom for turning it into the media circle. What the living <laughs> fuck? What the fuck? I'm sorry. This is the audacity. The audacity of causing this pain and not being able to withstand a day? These women, these girls, many of them, still minors, have been living with this for years. And you can't take 48 motherfucking hours to hear what you have inflicted? They're holding up a mirror to you and you are running away? You are a coward. And kudos to the judge in this case who responded to this ridiculous letter and said, listen, spending four or five days listening to them is significantly minor considering the hours of pleasure you have had at their expense and ruining their lives. I just, it. this is about power. And you can see now that he is shredded from it. He has no ability to exert himself over these brave young women. He's cowering. He's cowering and he's weeping and he is just, even in this moment, I don't know what else I would have expected. I knew he was a monster, but this revealed him to be a coward. I'm, I'm burning it. I'm, I'm enraged. I just have no words. 
Yeah, I've been listening to pretty much all these victim statements. And one of the things that has struck me that I think the level of his evilness and his soullessness, it continue. You don't think it could astound you anymore. And yet it does over and over and over again. What has gotten lost out of this conversation is that not only did he sexually abuse, which is, is, is the worst not only I've ever said, but most of these women came to him for specific treatments mm-hmm. of pain, and mm-hmm. he did not properly treat them. And many right. times he actually invented diagnoses of severe back pain or misdiagnosed them so they would keep coming to him so he would he could keep abusing them for his own pleasure. So many of these girls, besides the emotional pain and the, you know, the ways their lives have fallen apart, they're still in extreme physical pain because they were never treated properly when they were supposed to be. Oh. And we know how emotional trauma works in the body and exacerbates all kinds of, you know, their psychosomatic reactions to those types of things on top of the fact that they weren't treated for their actual physical ailment. Shireen, what do you want to burn about this case? Well, amongst the many things, like everyone else wants to incinerate, for me, one of the most harrowing things was the lack of media coverage on this particular. It's the most horrific systemic abuse in sports in the history of the United States. And I think that it was just staggering how little, and I'll actually be referring to work that Lindsay's done and Lindsay, just really the work I've got, you know, what I'm talking about lack of media coverage, the work you've put forward to this, like a hat tip to you because like I've been relying on you heavily and I know this work is exhausting. So when I say that, I also want to add that mad respect and much love and lots of self-care to the people that have been covering this because it's not easy. Now, in terms of the coverage or lack thereof, and which Larry Nasser had the audacity to say to the judge that he accused her of a quote-unquote media circus, which is not true. The Indianapolis Star broke this story, and we had in, in September of 2016, and in a previous episode, we did have the journalist on that had been following this. And then Lansing State Journal had covered it. Devorah Myers from Deadspin had been covering. I think the, um, and Jessica wrote a piece for BuzzFeed yesterday on it. I think it's important to know that there was a less than 20 minutes combined of Fox News, MSNBC, CNN on this entire case. And we're talking about everything from facts to witness testimony to actual court because he's been sentenced. This is just now what we're seeing as the victim impact. But the fact that it hadn't been covered the way it ought to be is just is just so devastating. And instead, we're hearing about I don't know, you'd like President Agent Orange having temper tantrums in Ford Mag- Forbes magazines. And I do, like it's just getting lost and it shouldn't be. And Brian Graham of uh, The Guardian actually wrote an article about this and why it's not getting more attention. And he wrote about this and he said, it's just that people don't care. And that really struck me because the reality is there are systems of violent systems in place. And do people really not care if people call up their local stations and say, listen, we we want to hear about this. Why is this not being reported if they tweet accurately? Like these things actually do make a difference. And 
for people to say. It's also, also I understand, difficult for people to hear and read about it, and it can be triggering. And lots of love out there to the survivors who are being re-triggered by this. But this is a systematic problem within this sport and in the United States and in many other countries that we ha- the only way to clean out this dirty laundry is to air it. It needs to be out there. And again, first and foremost, love and support to the survivors, those who have come forward and those who still can't. But in terms of media, you have a responsibility and not only to cover it, to cover it responsibly, use media toolkits if need be, Chicago Task Force of Femfesto, like it needs to be done and please do it responsibly. Jessica, you you actually wrote in BuzzFeed about people caring or not caring enough. Yeah, I did. They don't seem to care enough in, in my experience and from the circles I run in, even though like I run in one like this one right here where we care very deeply, the article's you know, framed around the Sandusky trial, which a lot of from Penn State, which just inundated the news like on all sides. And my entire point with the piece was to say that what we've learned, what this is the mask drawn back is that all that Sandusky coverage actually had nothing to do with the victims in that case and caring about child sexual abuse, that it was literally just the institution and specifically that coach, Joe Pa, that everyone loves so much. And that we can see that because here we have this horrific case with Nasser that doesn't receive the same kind of intensity of media scrutiny. It's not that people haven't been covering it. There's, uh, of course, there's the defensive response to the piece that like, there's lots of articles about this. And I heard about it from one of my friends. So that you must be wrong. And I just, you know, how are you ever going to prove that the intensity of the media coverage is very different, that the tenor and the fa- and the flavor of it is very different? But I feel like we, c- I mean, it seems obvious to me. And, and I think that's because they don't have an institution or a famous person that they identify with and care deeply about that's involved here. And it's, it's not about the victims. Like, it's not actually about that and trying to mitigate that kind of harm. And I think that was really what I wanted to draw attention to. Lindsay, as somebody who's covered this intensely, do you have something to comment in terms of media coverage of this? Yeah, I think that there needs to be a line drawn between reporting and coverage because the reporting on this case has been absolutely fantastic. And it is because, especially the Indianapolis Star and the Lansing State Journal reporters, that we are at this point. I mean, you know, they their reporting led to these brave survivors coming forward and got us to this point. So there's been phenomenal reporting. But that study that Shireen mentioned that I wrote about, about 20 minutes, so this this was last week that there was Monday through Friday morning, and it looked at CNN, Fox News, and MSNBC. So three 24-hour, seven days a week cable news stations. And it tallied in all the four days and all the, the stations just less than 20 minutes of coverage on this case. And this was the biggest week for the case in the media because it was the week that all of the victims were speaking day after day, nine to five in court. So that was, you know, really for me a staggering number because we're not expecting, unfortunately, at this point for those networks to do any new report, you know, like new investigative reporting on this. But they they should be amplifying it and they should be treating it like something people should care about because so many people get, you know, their cues about what to care about from those cable news stations. And building on Jessica's point that this is a great example of how the Paterno scandal wasn't or the, you know, what Sandusky did, that people were more outraged about 
Paterno's legacy than they were about the child sex abuse. And on that note, I think that I've heard a lot. Maybe we just don't care about female victims. Maybe we care about, you know, male victims. But I think society has told us that we don't really care about male victims of sexual assault either, right? We care about men's sports and the legacies of men's sports much more than we do women's sports. But we treat all victims like shit. Okay, so on the burn pile, which is already just flaming, 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 flames up to the sky. Jessica, what are you going to throw on? Yeah, so I'm going to start the, the enabling part of this. And I want to talk very about one specific enabler of Nassers who's getting less attention overall because there's so, so many fingers to be pointed here. But I want to talk about this guy. His name is John Geddert. And he was the head coach of the U.S. women's gymnastics team for the 2012 London, or in 2012 London, when the Fierce Five, Gabby Douglas, Michaela Maroney, Ali Raceman, Kyla Ross, and Jordan Weber won gold. Four of those women, Douglas, Maroney, Raceman, and now Weber, have said that Nasser abused them. Weber, the 2011 world all-around champion, was personally coached by Geddert, who is the owner of Twistars USA Gymnastics Club near East Lansing. On Tuesday last week, Outside the Lines published a long piece on Nasser's enablers, and the first one profiled was Geddert. Here's how his relationship to Nasser is described in the piece. Quote, the two men were all but inseparable professionally and socially. They worked together for more than 25 years, first at Great Lakes Gymnastics and starting in 1996 at the gym Geddert owns now, Twistars. They worked the 2012 Olympics together. Geddert was in Nasser's wedding party when Nasser got married in East Lansing in 1996. They attended each other's house parties and traveled the country and later the world together at competitions. They vouched for each other when faced with career-threatening circumstances. Most disturbingly, when we're listing in a hierarchy, at least one woman has said very clearly that Geddert knew of Nasser's abuse. This is how Outside the Lines wrote it up, quote, on at least one occasion, Geddert walked into the back room of Twistars while Nasser was digitally penetrating a young gymnast, according to the woman's court testimony. And this is what she said. All I remember is him, Nasser, doing the treatment on me with his fingers and my vagina, massaging, massaging my back with a towel over my butt, and John walking in and making a joke that I guess my back really did hurt. The gymnast who spoke to OTL about Geddert connect the two men through their abuse. In two separate incidents, a parent and a gymnast reported Geddert to the police for assault. The gymnast told police that Geddert stepped on her toe, grabbed her arm, and pushed her into the wall to discipline her. Nasser texted that gymnast's grandmother to plead on Geddert's behalf. Lindsay Lemke, who started training at Twistars when she was seven years old and is currently a senior at Michigan State University, spoke about Geddert's behavior this week. Quote, he would take girls by the shoulders, squeeze hard enough to leave marks, shake them, and yell directly into their face. There was specifically one time where he picked up the vault hand mat and hit me with it because I couldn't get my vault right that day, and this was already after I had crashed into the vault hard enough to bruise and bleed. The quote that will forever stay with me, though, from this piece that OTL did is about how the two men's abusive behaviors fed each other. One gymnast told OTL, quote, part of what enabled this is John broke little girls' spirits and bodies, and Larry was there to fix them. This made me think about how often we excuse coaches' behavior, which in any other context would be seen as abusive because that's how you, because we have this idea of this is how you make athletes better. You berate them. You push them around. You make them feel little in order to see if they can rise above that. John broke little girls' spirits and bodies, and Larry was there to fix them. We have to reckon with that part of this, too. Uh, it, it's difficult to just hear hear that. It's it's so important to recognize that this isn't about one person, but oh, 
breaking little girl's spirits is nothing anyone should be should be doing. So speaking about Michigan State, I mean, just to segue into my burn, I, I went to Michigan State and I belong to the Campus Feminist Collective. I worked at the Women's Resource Center. I know that there are people at Michigan State who would have moved mountains to prevent this. And they could have, but for the irresponsibility of the officials that were already informed. And so it's unbelievable to me what has happened. It is unbelievable. But in any case, now it's believable and we have to process and digest that. This is this week what I'm burning, (laughs) pissed me off so bad. Patrick Fitzgerald, the lead attorney for Michigan State University in the cases, defended MSU's response to Nasser in a letter to the Michigan Attorney General. And he said, he said, quote, the evidence will show that no MSU official believed that Nasser committed sexual abuse prior to newspaper reports in the summer of 2016. End of quote. The operative word here is believe. They didn't believe people. They were informed. They had the information, but they did not believe those students. They did not believe those women. They did not believe softball player Tiffany Thomas Lopez, who told at least two different trainers she was assaulted at least 10 times by Larry Nasser in 2000. She went unheard and ended up leaving softball and then MSU. Even after the Title IX investigation concluded Nasser's procedures constituted violations, he continued to be employed for 16 months. It's unbelievable to me. And I would like to say that at the very least, you know, the students at Michigan State the, are absolutely clear about, about this. A couple of days ago, the Associated Students of Michigan State University, the student government passed a resolution saying, quote, we as undergraduate students no longer have the faith and confidence in the current administration of Michigan State University to carry out the duties of fostering a safe and secure campus atmosphere. End of quote. All of these people need to resign. This is unbelievable. And I just want to continue. A few days ago, the Board of Trustees then reiterated their support for President Luanna Simon, even though it's clear that she knew this. She reiterated their support this week. This week. Two days ago. Two days ago. And, and, And she responded that she is watching the testimony by live streaming. Now, I, I'm sorry. She but showed up one day for a couple of hours. She did show up for a couple of hours. One right, day. but she claims she's watching everything live streaming. It's 10 minutes. It's a 10 minute drive. And I would just like to say, if people feel frustrated, you know what's amazing about this? The MSU Board of Trustees cont- consists of eight members for eight year terms, two members selected every two years by the people of Michigan in a statewide general election. So Michiganders, get your asses up and vote these people out. The current chairperson, Brian Breslin, from the Republican Party already said he's not going to he's not going to run again. So anyway, I'm just going to end on burning it. But I also want to, like, put flame to the feet of people in Michigan and say, do not let these people represent you. You have an option. You know, it's not like Harvard where their trustees are like God knows who. Right. These are elected officials and they need to be they need to be held to task. Okay, sorry about that. Shireen. Yeah. 
Just quickly, one of our faves uh, on Burn It All Down, Jamal Hill, actually published today in The Undefeated. Today is Sunday. And she also is an MSU grad. And she writes just really profoundly, Michigan States needs to wear this shame. The university deserves this humiliation, derision, doubt, discomfort, and every unkind word. We need to listen to every word from the victims and absorb all of their anger. They've dealt with this betrayal and violation of their trust for years. Michigan State only has to survive a few new cycles. It's really, you know, just really important that, and I thank you, Bren, and all those MSU alumnus who are out there calling them out because it's important. And as somebody who works at Penn State, who has really been, you know, reckoning with similar ways to move forward, I think one of the things that you pointed to, Brenda, is, is so important about mobilization and that there are people, I work in the Women's Studies Department here, who is amazing. They are, they part of what they do and their students are demanding accountability. And the thing with these institutions is that they're so large that they can be points of reckoning and they're people that you can build with. And it's always going to be a battle. It continues to be a battle here. And, and it's been a few years. And I think that that's the other thing that people need to realize that you're strapping in for a really long battle where a lot of people in power don't want to give that up easily. Um, this is just the beginning. Absolutely. Lindsay, do you want to pour gasoline on this burn pile <laughs> Just, just make it happen. Don't I always? Well, I want, did want to really quickly say that, that on Saturday, one MSU trustee, Mitch Lyons, did call for the resignation of President Lou Anna K. Simon. We'll see if that is a trend. Of course, on the same day, the basketball coach, Tom Izzo, reiterated his support and said, quote, I hope the right person is convicted. So, you know, anyways, MSU, if Michigan State could get a PR person or something, if they can't get a soul, can you at least get a PR person? Like, I don't know. Anyways, it's just, it's just infuriating. All right. Are we, are we ready to go to the, the mammoth, the mammoth? Let's talk USA Gymnastics and US Olympic Committee, shall we? So, first of all, the first known direct report to USA Gymnastics officials about the abuse was in 2015. And we can burn everything about their response since then. And that in itself is enough for like a humongous scandal. But I really quickly would like to say that it's important to note that John Geddert was a USA Gymnastics certified coach in 1998 when he was told about the abuse and he found out about the abuse. Twistars is a USA Gymnastics certified gym. And that means that they had the responsibility to report it to USA Gymnastics in the late 90s. So USA Gymnastics, if everyone had done their jobs, would have known in the late 1990s, even if the Michigan State element of this wasn't going on. And that's gotten lost. And that is appalling. And I'd also like to note that all of this is happening within the context of a larger Uh, sexual abuse scandal at USA Gymnastics. So this is from the very first Indianapolis Star investigation into this that launched all this. But remember, the very first Indianapolis Star investigation into this was into the systematic sexual abuse at USA Gymnastics. It wasn't even focused on Larry Nassar. It was just that Rachel Denhollander read this investigation. We had her on the show a few weeks ago, episode 31. It's a must listen. And You know, so when she read their big investigation, that's when she came forward about Nassar and got the ball rolling there. But just so, okay, so so top executives have failed to alert authorities to many allegations of sexual abuse. 
and they relied on policies that enabled predators to abuse gymnasts long after USA Gymnastics had received warnings. That is a quote from the Indianapolis Star investigation. So that's, it's a really important context for all of this because USA Gymnastics denials just don't fit with like the history that we know. But let's talk a little bit about, let's start in 2015. Okay, in 2015, Sarah Jancy, who was the coach of Maggie Nichols, who was an elite gymnast at the time, who was expected to be on the Olympics team in 2016 before she was injured. But anyways, Sarah overheard Nichols telling Allie Raisman about one of Nasser's treatment sessions. This coach was very alarmed and notified USA Gymnastics officials immediately, as well as Nichols' parents. USA Gymnastics, you think they would, they want you to think that they notified law enforcement right away. That's what they initially said. They did not, however. It took them five weeks. The first thing they did was to hire a workplace harassment investigator to look into the matter. Took them five weeks, and it should be noted, and I have to credit the the podcast Gymtastic, uh, which is, or Gymcastic, excuse me, which is an excellent gymnastics podcast, but for pointing this out for me, where the independent investigator actually gave them the report, gave USA Gymnastics the report at the end of one week, saying that, like, yes, you need to deliver this to the FBI. And uh, USA Gymnastics waited till the following business day, which was Monday, to report it, because the FBI probably doesn't take calls on the weekend. So anyways, around the time the USA Gymnastics finally notified the FBI, Nasser and the USA Gymnastics Committee officially parted ways, but USA Gymnastics allowed Nasser to publicly portray it as a retirement. He wrote a sappy retirement post on Facebook. USA Gymnastics did not notify Twistars, which once again is a USA Gymnastics accredited gym where they knew Nasser was treating patients, nor did they nor did they notify Michigan State University. Okay. (laughs) Then again, okay, so it took until mid-2016 for the FBI to actually interview Allie Raisman and Maggie Nichols. It didn't interview Allie Raisman until after the 2016 Olympics, which I just don't feel is a coincidence. Do you? It actually took nine months for the FBI investigation into this to get officially launched. And it took that long for uh, USA Gymnastics to call them up and say, hey, are you actually investigating this or not? During this whole time, they told parents that they who were there being interviewed, they told parents that they could not talk about this publicly. And the reason they were not talking about this publicly was because of the FBI investigation, the one that wasn't launched for so many months. Okay, sorry. Uh, It's been a really, this is one of those cases where every single detail I I, like find is more appalling than the last. So we also know that they paid Michaela Maroney $1.25 million to stay silent. There's believed to be other confidentiality agreements that USA Gymnastics paid out as well. There was a non-disclosure agreement included in that, but that they're saying now that they will not, you know, support that. Uh, which is good. You know, that's that's so kind of them. They also said Maggie Nichols spoke, came out publicly to ESPN this past week for, for the first time as a victim A, as the person who first reported to USA Gymnastics. In this, though, gymna- USA Gymnastics gave a jaw-dropping response to Maggie Nichols criticizing that they waited five weeks to report this to the FBI by saying that after its private investigator talked to to Raisman and Nichols, it didn't have, quote, reasonable suspicion that they had been molested by Nasser. It took until they spoke to a third victim. They released this statement this week during all this trials going on. 
Oh my God. Okay. So let's take it to how USA Gymnastics and US, US Olympic Committee, who oversees USA Gymnastics, have been held accountable for this. Well, they haven't. Steve Penny, who was the president of USA, the CEO, I believe, of USA Gymnastics, was finally forced out last, just this last spring. So once again, quite some time, you know, over six months after the Indy Star investigation came out. He did receive a $1 million severance package, however. Everybody else on the USA Gymnastics board, including Chairman Paul Perilla, who I I believe chairman of the board is like big boss man, if I understand, you know, executive talk. The vice president, the treasurer, they have all these people who staunchly defended everything Steve Penny did, who and we know that Steve Penny explicitly asked the gymnast and their parents to keep quiet. They all staunchly defended him and they all still have their jobs. There are calls for USA Gymnastics to completely clean house, down to even some trainers. One trainer, Debbie Van Horn, who is now the USAG's Director of Sports Medicine Services. There are calls on her to step down immediately because she worked directly beside Nasser for two decades and was supposed to be the other female in the room during Nasser's treatments. <laughs> she was recently promoted. Also, <laughs> a lot of this abuse happened at the Crowley Ranch. Betta and Martha Crowley, who we know there have been allegations that they are physically and verbally abusive for years. We can go back to there. I know I'm going long. I'm sorry. There's just so much here. But, I, you know, when Jess, when you were talking about Gettard and that emotionally abusive environment, you know, I couldn't physically abusive. I couldn't help think that the same thing is happening at the Crowley Ranch, right, which is the, the centralized system for USA Gymnastics has built it into this powerhouse. And look, it's important to know that at the at this Crowley Ranch compound, which parents are not allowed to attend, often private coaches aren't allowed to attend, and it is isolated to the point that it's hard to find. Exactly. And Ali, Ali's point was so great this week, sorry to jump in, that at the same time that they released the statement saying, okay, we're not going to have gymnasts return to the Crowley Ranch, they had people there that right. same day training. So, so, so just going back back just a little bit at the Crowley ranch Nasser was allowed to enter their dorms privately he was allowed to treat them wherever which goes against every regulation you got every single one and a lot of the gymnasts including so it was really elite gymnasts who were here but Simone Biles Ali Raisin Maggie Nichols Kayla Maroney have all said they were abused at the Crowley ranch and up until earlier this week the Crowley ranch was still the place where the national team was going to train when Simone Biles came forward with her statement she said, I can't believe I'm going to go in order to make the next Olympics. I'm going to have to go back to the place where I was abused. So finally this week, USA Gymnastics announced that it was parting ways with the Crowley Ranch, that it was looking for other places, and that it was canceling the next national team, national team training camp so that it could find another ranch. However, like Amir just told us there were gymnasts there currently training at the time. And there's an there's an artistic gymnastics or acrobatic gymnastics, excuse me, event happening there in February because it was too late to reschedule. If you're wondering, nobody from the USOC showed up to hear testimony all week. Allie Raceman asked, I would like to finish this by saying, why isn't the U.S. Olympic Committee here now? I've represented the U.S. in two Olympics and both USAG and the USOC have been quick to capitalize on my success. But did they reach out to me when I came forward? No, they did not. And USOC has not taken away USAG's Olympic certification. So burn. Oh my God. Okay. Burn, all right. All right. Burn, this burn, deserves burn. like a huge chorus of burns right now. Like this is like, let's just burn it. Loud burns. Ready? Burn. 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 
burn it all down. Badass Women of the Week. Our award this week goes to the fiercely courageous survivors of Larry Nasser. We hear you. Our admiration, solidarity, and love are directed toward you these weeks. Shireen? We would like to offer a poem, read a poem by Libo Mashiel, who is actually a South African-American poet, presenter, actress, and this is really beautiful. It's called Tell Your Story. After they've fed off your memories, erased dreams from your eyes, broken the seams of sanity, and glued what's left together with lies, after the choices and voices have left you alone, and silence grows solid, adhering like flesh to your bones. They've always known your spirit's home lay in your gentle sway, to light in substance, but jaded mirrors and false prophets have a way of removing you from yourself. You who live with seven names, you who walks with seven faces, none can eliminate your pain. Tell your story. Let it nourish you, sustain you, and claim you. Tell your story. Let it feed you, heal you, and release you. Tell your story. Let it twist and remix your shattered heart. Tell your story until your past stops tearing your present apart. That's beautiful. Now we'd like to hear a little bit from some of the testimony. Lindsay? Yeah, this clip is from Larissa Boyce, who in 1997, when she was a teenage gymnast, she told Michigan State coach Kathy Clagus that she was abused by Larry Nassar. She... It took 20 years for her to see any justice prevail. She gave an incredibly emotional and moving testimony at the end of the day on Friday that I've been thinking about all weekend. I'm going to play you a clip from the end of that where she flashes back to what it was like being 17 after she was told that she was wrong, that she wasn't actually abused, and the doubt that filled her soul after that, and now this reckoning. Thank you, Larissa, for your voice. Last year, I sought answers and explored my past after all of this started coming out. I came across a journal entry that I wrote during the time that you were abusing me. It was dated January 16th, 1998. I had just turned 17, and I'm going to share that with you right now. Slowly, day by day, it is creeping up on me, always one step closer to devouring my soul. I feel so unworthy of living and being happy. I am always feeling the guilt of something which gets heavier as each day passes. It's almost as if I have a pile of bricks weighing down on my shoulders. Every day, a new one is added on my weary back. I'm tired of being so unhappy with things in my life right now. I even feel guilty for feeling guilty. I guess that I am just a mental case. Will these feelings change and leave me in peace? Or will I have to live with this the rest of my life? I do everything wrong. A 17-year-old girl wrote that. Do you see that dark place that she was in? To have those words, have that buried inside of me? I did not understand the pain I was feeling, but now it makes complete sense. You tore me apart with your selfish desires, but like I said earlier, I am strong and I am really, really resilient. I will survive, and I choose to be stronger because of it. You chose the wrong prey. We are athletes. 
We will not give up or give in. We are trained to fight past the pain and hurt. United, we are now an army of amazing women who are paving the path to justice and change. Finally, we'd like to talk a little bit about what's giving us joy and hope in the dark times this week. Jessica? <laughs> yeah, mine is Halt and Catch Fire. It's a TV show. It aired on AMC. And my husband and I finished watching it this week. There's only four seasons, 40 episodes. It's all on Netflix. It became one of my most favorite shows ever. And it's about the tech world starting in the mid 80s, going to the mid 90s, starts in Texas, of course, ends in Silicon Valley. These people are always on the cutting edge of tech. It's sort of, you get to see every version of Nintendo that, that existed in that time. It's really fun in that, in that sort of way. But it's really a show about relationships and people and specifically about two women and their friendship and the roller coaster that they go through together across time. And I just loved it. And this week, I, I mean, we watched the last four episodes, I think on Wednesday night, and I was a wreck in the best, and, in the best way. And I just loved Halt and Catch Fire. It's on Netflix. Y'all should go watch it. On the to-do list. Shireen. Okay. Well, I know that everybody was on the edge of their seats for hashtag Shireen meets Nadia 2018. And so what ended up happening is a couple of days ago, really good friends of mine from Muslim Women in Sports Network sent me a Nadia Nadim jersey, a Man City jersey, which I Instagrammed. And she replied to my Instagram. She actually replied. I think it must have been the 700 messages and tweets that I've been pushing. Um, Anyway, so she acknowledged my presence. I love her. Hopefully we'll meet. Also this week, later this week, I'm going to Surrey, B.C. for the Kwantlen Polytechnic University's Documentary Film Festival. And I'm going to be doing a panel for a film called Girl Unbound about Maria Turkapsai, who is uh, from Waziristan in Pakistan. And she is a young woman who plays squash and sort of had to disguise herself as male in order to do that to escape like sort of violence from the Taliban and persecution. So that's going to be very cool. So I'm very excited about that. And tomorrow is my birthday. Yeah. So. <laughs> Everybody everywhere should be happy that Shireen. Amira. Yeah, my something good is that I'm heading back to Texas to give a talk. I'm very excited because Texas is always, it's always great to see my family and I will be getting to see Jess, which is super exciting. And I'm going to watch my little cousin who plays for Baylor. They have a big game. They're number four right now playing number six ranked Texas. It's a huge game on Thursday night and I'm going to go cheer her on. I'm very excited for that. And also since I'm not going to be on the podcast next week, but I wanted to send a very special shout out to my oldest daughter, my oldest, my only daughter, my oldest child, Samari, who is turning the big 10 on January 30th. I have been in the parenting game for a decade, which is ridiculous, but also she is absolutely the light of my life and she makes every day just the best days and she has for for a decade now. Um, So happy, happy, happy birthday, Bug. Lindsay. Happy birthing day. It's the Australian Open, and in normal weeks, I would be watching a lot more of that than I would be victim statements. But I've been, uh, most of my time has gone to victim statements, but I've caught bits and pieces of the Australian Open here and there. And I just love it. I love the sport. And I just love tennis so much, friends. I just, it's just good for the soul. That Simona Halep-Lauren Davis match, 15th, 13th, and 3rd. 
watch that. If you have, if someone ever tells you they don't like women's tennis or they only like Serena or, you know what I mean, something like that, just show them the uh, last few games of that match. Awesome. And my what's good for the week is that I bought my first pair of indoor soccer cleats. Woo! I don't know. Do you even call them indoor <laughs> soccer right. cleats, Shereen? And well, they're not they're not technically cleats because right, they don't have right? the studs. Indoor but, soccer yeah. shoes. Boots. Shoes sound <laughs> so Boots. pedestrian. Boots. I want I want something more badass. Like no, no, you call them Smoke. you got you call them boots. That's what the okay. proper term. Okay, okay, yeah. okay. I got it. And I bought them <laughs> to take lessons from Shireen when I visit her in Montreal in two Ooh. weeks. So I'm super excited because I'm secretly going to kick her butt. All right. That's it for this week in Burn It All Down. Burn It All Down lives on SoundCloud, but can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. We appreciate your reviews and feedback, so please subscribe and rate. Let us know what we did well and how we can improve. We'd like to send out a special thank you to Hofstra University for its ongoing support of the podcast. You can find us on Facebook at Burn It All Down, on Twitter at Burn It All Down Pod, or at Instagram at, at Burn It All Down Pod. And you can email us at burnitalldownpod at gmail.com. Check out our website, www.burnitalldownpod.com, where you'll find previous episodes, transcripts, and links to our Patreon. We would appreciate you subscribing, sharing, and rating our show, which helps us do the work we love to do and keep burning what needs to be burned. I'd also like to thank my co-hosts today for actually articulating words in the face of a monstrous case instead of just screaming for the last hour. Have a good week, everybody. And I saw-